Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show, welcome. It is a Tuesday, July the 12th, year of our Lord, 2022, continues to roll along. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Andrew Donaldson, and for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. we got a lot to cover today. We're going to turn down the noise on a lot of different news, some big picture stuff we want to cover today, too. Uh, we're going to take some time, go through a piece from Diplomatic Career, going to talk about freedom of press and freedom of religion and how those two things are foundational to any society any country in building up resilience, resilience in a country being able to put down things like disinformation, hate speech, the things that really destabilize a society in a country. I'm going to talk about how those two freedoms, freedom of religion and freedom of press, must go together to make countries successful, whether it's America or any other country in the world. It's going to cover three countries as case studies in South America Africa and overseas. Uh, get to that in just a little bit. Also on the program today, uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun. We've been doing a lot of heavy topics. Let's have some fun. The shipwreck that inspired the Goonies. Uh, yes, there was a real ship. No, it wasn't one-eyed Willie in the Inferno. However, there was a real Spanish galleon wrecked, they think, off the coast of Oregon, and they think they're finding pieces of it. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. We close the program on a good note. We're going to talk about a lady who lost a diamond ring in the water, and Fire Rescue decided to take a stab at diving to see if they could find it. Let you know how that turned out. Great guest today, uh, returning to the program. She's been on before, uh, Elise Amiro. We're going to talk about M- Medicare, Medicaid, uh, entitlement programs, uh, the trust fund, as we heard about ad nauseum, if you're like me and grew up in the 90s. Uh, it's got a problem. There's more going out than coming in. Now, we've known this has been a problem for a long time. We're up against it now. There's dates coming due, uh, 2026 by some estimates, 2030 by some estimates. We're going to talk to Elise Zami about the state of Medicare, Medicaid, and what's going on with it, funding issues, the political problems, the fiduciary problems. Uh, important topic nobody ever wants to talk about, but one of these days is going to be a big, big issue in our country. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. I want to start, though, uh, with Sri Lanka over the weekend. Uh, things really got ugly over there. We've been covering Sri Lanka a lot on this program for good reason, because there's a lot of cross streams. There's a lot of geopolitics. There's a lot of lessons to learn out of what's going on in Sri Lanka. Long story short, the government has badly mismanaged this country. There was a lot of nepotism and who was in the government. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, They've had some policies that were disastrous, like banning fertilizer that crushed uh, food production and prices for farmers. There's been international entanglements with their debt situation. Uh, they have debt involvement with a lot of foreign countries. America actually is a bondholder on some of that debt. 
They have a lot of debt to China. They have a lot of debt to India. They have a lot of debt to other people. And they have defaulted on that debt. And they don't have any way to pay it back because they're out of foreign cash reserves. Now, on top of all that, they've got a fuel crisis and a food crisis. This is exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, among other things. Thank you, Vladimir Putin, for setting yet another part of the world on fire with your aggression and disregard for humanity. But in Sri Lanka, it's gotten so bad that they've actually had to stop giving people gas when there's no food and there's no gas and your government's crumbling under corruption, that's a recipe for disaster. And it popped off over the weekend where, but we had these amazing images of the people of Sri Lanka taking over the presidential palace, swimming in the swimming pool, taking showers in the shower, laying on the couches, a remarkable scene of thousands of people just mobbing. And I don't mean it, it wasn't overly violent. They were just completely overwhelmed it. So now let's go to this story. This is from uh, RFI International. Go to Baya Rajapaska, and I'm probably still pronouncing this, even though I've been trying really hard not to, uh, had promised to resign on Wednesday and clear the way for a, quote, peaceful transition of power following widespread protests against him and the country's unprecedented economic crisis. The 73-year-old leader fled his office official residence in Colombo just before tens of thousands of protesters overran it on Saturday and wanted to travel to Dubai and get out of the country as president. Rajapaska enjoys immunity from arrest, and he believed to want to go abroad before stepping down to avoid the possibility of being detained and or being caught by the mobs. But immigration officers were refusing to go to the VIP suite to stamp his passport. While he insisted he would not go through the public facilities, fearing reprisals from other airport users, the president and his wife spent the night at a military base next to the main international airport after missing four separate flights that could have taken him to the UAE or Dubai. Raja Pasca's youngest brother, Basil, who resigned in April as finance minister, remember we talked about this, there's some nepotism involved here, missed his own Emirates flight to Dubai early Tuesday after a similar standoff with airport staff. Basil tried to use the paid concierge service for business travelers, but the airport and immigration staff said they were withdrawing from the fast track service with immediate effect, Quote, there was some other passengers who protested against him boarding their flight and airport officials said it's a tense situation. So he hurriedly left the airport. Basil, to complicate things, is a U.S. dual citizen, had obtained a new passport after leaving his behind at the presidential palace when they fled and beat a hasty retreat to avoid the mob. Now, this is an ugly situation that's probably going to get uglier. Again, like we said, when you don't have food, you don't have fuel and you don't have hope, people are going to get desperate. There's a lot of corruption involved here, but there's a bigger picture part of why we've been covering this story too. China has used the debt that they've owned to do certain things in Sri Lanka, like take over part of one of the port facilities and other things. India, of course, because of their proximity, is trying to blunt China's influence here and step in, and they want to be the one to help stabilize Sri Lanka. This is a big deal because of a piece of reporting that came out earlier uh, yesterday that sometime next year, the UN is estimating that India will become the most populous nation on the planet. So now you have India, the world's largest democracy, even though they've got some problems we'll detail at another time, and China, the world's largest dictatorship, indirect uh, geopolitical conflict. And they're going to be doing a tug of war over Sri Lanka for influence. And the poor people of Sri Lanka and that long-suffering country are going to be the rope in that tug of war. But also on a broader plane, this is something you're going to see more. We saw some 
rioting in Africa over the weekend. We've seen some protests starting to come up in Europe because things are getting tight. There's a farmer's protest going on in the Netherlands right now. You're going to see more and more social unrest because food prices and fuel prices go far beyond politics. People can't eat, work, function. They get cranky and they're going to take to the streets and they're going to demand answers from their government, especially in Europe. Because remember, these fuel prices, winter is coming. You're going to see a lot of pressure to change the policies towards Ukraine if the prices of fuel stay high and Russia keeps leveraging against Europe. So why do we cover Sri Lanka? Because it's an interconnected world and people problems are universal. And the things that are going on in Sri Lanka are indicative, are instructive, and very well may be happening other places soon. It's important we cover these stories, not just the domestic politics, not just stuff that tickles our ears, things that matter, like how geopolitics has absolutely taken a country in crisis, made it worse, and people are really, really suffering with not a whole lot of hope in sight. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hertel. I want to read you a piece from Diplomatic Courier. This is going to be kind of a big picture, big issue kind of subject, but I think it's important for us every now and then take a break. I know it's not partisan politics, but this isn't the tickle your ears show. This is the we talk about important stuff show. Uh, this is an important topic uh, from Diplomatic Courier. Uh, full disclosure, I've published there before. This is written by Paul Turner. Uh, who is the FFP executive director. He starts out talking about the United States, but he goes to a global thing here. And he says, um, based identities in countries classified as both free and not free, in essence, the United States is not alone in confronting these challenges. I'm picking this piece up about a third of the way down. How do we combat this polarization? A prerequisite to a resilient society is a public square that creates a space for constructive and collective engagement. The public square enables people from different cultures, demographics, values, and belief systems to engage, connect, and ultimately act on common challenges. The media, including social media, print journalism, and broadcast media, believes themselves a key arbiter of this square, but when ethnicity and religion is concerned, their effectiveness is increasingly limited. This is from Diplomatic Courier. Religion, broadly defined here as core values and belief system, lies at the crux of social identity and is a key tool utilized with the connections and dividers in an increasingly polarized environment. With 80% of the world's population identifying with a religion, faith communities represent a powerful champion for transformation and change. Faith groups, both historically and today, play major roles in shifting societal norms. 
catalyzing social action, and providing relief services in ways that encompass groups beyond their own followers. The World Economic Forum recognizes the relevance of religion and faith in the global economy, politics, society, and individuals, as well as the role played by faith communities in advancing society in an inclusive and substantive way. Faith and religious identity may be regarded as drivers of community cohesion and therefore resilience, but when paired with the breakdown of the public square, can also be a driver of fragility. Through analysis of major indices through the Fragile State Index and in-depth review of these increasingly polarized countries, Brazil, India, Ethiopia, we investigate the intersection of media and religion and their impact on country-level resilience. Again, reading from Diplomatic Courier. Brazil is the most ethnically diverse country in South America, despite just under 65% identifying as Roman Catholic, Protestants, and spiritualists also make up notable portions of that society. In addition, the legacy of Brazil's history of forced conversion of indigenous groups to Christianity, along with colonialism and racism, continue to ripple through the society. President Bolsonaro's election in 2019 coincided with the decline in both freedom of religion and freedom of the press, and both continue to decline today. These two factors have had major importance and impact on the ability of the media to report on issues of cultural and political importance, something especially notable as the state continues to influence the media. Similarly, India's population, by the way, India's population is going to surpass China sometime next year to be the most populous country in the world. You might want to file that in the back of your mind for later. Back to the diplomatic career. India's population encompasses most of the world's Hindus, Jains, and Sikhs, along with one of the largest Muslim populations across the globe. Millions of Christians and Buddhists also call India home. Indians have created a series of separate communities, like a patchwork quilt that comes together at each edge, but does not overlap. The quilt pieces remain insular with its replicated in online echo chambers. In a unique use of hate spin, that's in quotes because we're talking about media and social media, the Bharati Janata Party, BJP, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this, government has used defamation, sedition, and hate speech laws to discourage, threaten, and silence those critical of the BJP Hindu nationalist narrative. Decentralized Hindu nationalist campaigns violently discourage forms of expression deemed, quote, anti-national which has exacerbated self-censorship in the media. Outside of direct manipulation, Indian media is heavily reliant on advertising revenues, and the government is one of the major advertisers. You can see the problem. Combined with the trauma of post-colonial partition that led to cultural segregation, the decrease in press freedoms, exacerbated intolerance, hate speech, violence, and anti-Hindu or anti-Muslim legislative, respectively, depending on who you're talking to, as well as violence against other religious minorities. The kind of violence is also growing in Ethiopia, now going to Africa, where the population is more evenly divided among Ethiopian Orthodox, by the way, one of the oldest Christian sects, far outdating most Western Christian sects, Christian Protestants, and Muslims. Hence, the resurgence of a state tactic to limit free press, including imprisoning journalists, Cutting access to internet and political motivated laws targeting hate speech are both a response and a contributor to identity-based conflicts. The main radio and television news are owned and operated by the government, which allows them to dictate the content of those channels. While mobile phone access is increasing, the government's reliance on state-run channels means it's falling behind the much quicker spread of hate speech on social media. Instead of integrating social media into the communication strategy, the government has tried to block many social media sites and sometimes cuts off the Internet altogether, an ineffective effort to stem escalations in the intercommunal tensions. Such tensions are already running high 
and frequently exacerbated by disinformation online. For example, in February 2019, fake reports appeared about an attack on a mosque. These led to destructions of 10 churches. The next day, two mosques were attacked and a third mosque was burned a few days later. The tit-for-tat style violence relies heavily on social media encouraging religious brethren to take revenge, whether it's true or not. The volume of one-sided and incomplete news sources from both the government-owned media sources and from those who claim to tell the story the government will not online make it very difficult for those in Ethiopia and the influential diaspora community to get a complete picture of events and bring attention to solution. Again, I'm reading from Diplomatic Courier. here. These three case studies, Brazil, India, and Ethiopia, share similarities in their challenges, but they also present a common set of solutions to build resilience. The protection of minority populations from hate speech and the violence that flows is crucial to long-term country-level resilience. This can be included in activities from increasing human and AI monitoring of online hate speech and disinformation to training respected religious leaders and tradition leaders on de-escalation processes. Media literacy initiatives can also serve as an opportunity to promote religious tolerance and build social cohesion. Investing in initiatives that encourage local reporting are key to decreasing incorrect or sensationalized reporting that foments discord. In addition, localized media and monitoring can reduce the use of dehumanizing and violence inciting hate speech that may be coded and unrecognizable to global or even country and national level media and hate speech monitors. The issue of building resilience extends far beyond the relationships between media and faith, but the media and communities of faith as pillars of society impact and are impacted by declining freedoms in unique ways that contribute to an erosion of social cohesion. The United States finds itself struggling with many of these same issues, including the ability to shape political narratives, the connection between religious identity and hate speech, whether perceived or true, and the limited exposure to diverse faith traditions by the media. By exploring the real-time implication of threats to freedom of religion and freedom of press globally, we can identify spaces to invest in, strengthen, and support resilience worldwide. That's from Paul Turner and Diplomatic Courier. A lot of heavy stuff there. We'll link to the full piece. Please read it in total. But it's also one of our things we always want to talk about here. Freedom of religion, freedom of press, freedom of speech. These are foundational, not just to communities, not just to your individual freedoms, but making your country and your community and the global community resilient to very bad faith actors, those unworthy schemers we're always talking about. Freedom is a great barrier against them. The less freedom you have, the more of them you're going to have. More hotel in just a moment. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, she's back again. It's been a little bit since we've seen her, but we're always thrilled to have her back. She's an expert in healthcare policy, another one of our great young voices contributors. Elise Amidro has rejoined the program. Welcome back. How are you? Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thrilled to have you back. Appreciate you taking time in your busy schedule. Uh, let's talk about um, the problem. See, this is one of those things where it's like everybody knows it's a problem. Everybody talks about it. Nobody wants to do anything about it. 
And we already know how this goes because we've seen it with Omnibus. We've seen it with government funding. We, you pick whatever you want. We even did this with health care reform. If you go all the way back to the ACA, our Congress in America seems to only be able to legislate by emergencies. They've really got an emergency pending on the horizon with uh, Medicare. Where do we even start with this? Because the clock's ticking. We've been saying it for 20, 30, 40 years, all my adult life. Well, we're getting within three, four, five years of this thing now. How do we even start getting people to pay attention to this thing? That's a great question. There are many, many ways we can get people to pay attention, but it's hard to do it when the emergency doesn't feel real. So pretty much taking a step back, what we're talking about here is, is Medicare Part A. It's the part that pays for the hospital services of people who are on Medicare. For the most part, it's people who are elderly, and there's just not enough money to go around for their services. So what's going to happen is currently the prediction is 2028 for it to be insolvent. That means there's not enough money to pay for all the care. That should matter to people, but apparently it doesn't currently. I didn't know this until I read your piece. Somehow I missed this too, but now people say, well, how can the something not be funded? Because Congress can just wave a magic wand and make more money. Well, that's kind of true budgeting wise. I didn't realize this until I read your piece, but it almost went insolvent last year. They brought in 32, $362 billion, 360 went out and people say $2 billion, but in the grand scheme of things, that's kind of a close call on the budget line item, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And we're, we always do that, right? We're very, very close to it, but we're not there yet. So people don't feel it. But it's not the first time this is happening. Like this has happened in the past too, in the 90s. And you know, at the time there was a fix. The problem is when Medicare was set up in the first place, there, people were going gonna to be on Medicaid, Medicare only for a few years because life expectancy was quite short then. And so we, we thought we could afford um, this generous program. But now that people get to live, you know, a couple decades into their retirement, which is fantastic news, it just makes the program extremely expensive. And we haven't kind of changed the configuration of, you know, the financing of it, which means that there's just enough, not enough money now. And it's not just the money part of this. Uh, the population is a lot bigger now than it was when this program first came in. We are up to 62 million beneficiaries. That number is going to continue to rise. Um, is that a good way to talk about this? Because here's the thing. We start talking, you know, you're a policy person. You know this. You start talking to people, you know, billions of dollars and 20-year plans. and t- their, their eyes just glaze over. People can't get their heads around that number. Should we maybe attack this from that point of view of like, hey, we're up to 330 million Americans. We got 62 million beneficiaries. There's more of them and every American that works. You're paying for this. Would that maybe be a better way of attacking this and maybe the fiscal policy side of this just to get people to kind of get their heads around it? That is absolutely the way I want to go about it. I personally care about this because I see how much I pay for Medicare every month because that's taken out of my paycheck. And I don't even see the the part that my employer pays, but it's the same part. (laughs) So there's a lot of my compensation that goes directly to Medicare. And currently, beneficiaries on Medicare get three times as much from the program as what they put in. So Medicare beneficiaries love to think that they've earned it, right? Like their whole life, they contributed to Medicare and now they're just cashing out. But in reality, they're cashing out three times as much. It's kind of the best investment they could have ever made. So it bothers me because for people my age, um, we're putting a lot of money into it, but it's definitely not going to be there when we retire. So we're just giving this gift to, to the elderly and People love to complain about how we can't, you know, have houses now because they're too expensive. We don't have enough financial independence. 
well, maybe this is one way of looking at it is this money is just being given to the older generation. Is that really fair? I, I would think it's not. Right. But this is where the politics part of this comes into the policy discussion, because like you said, if you've watched that go out of your paycheck every year for 30, 40 years, whatever your working career is, you feel entitled to it. And they are to an extent. I don't know how we ever explain that to people, because especially elderly people, they're like, look, I paid into this all my life. I deserve whatever they're going to give me. I get that. I mean, that's that's completely on a human level. Fine. How do you ever craft any kind of a policy initiative to get around that? Because I don't think you're going to make any change with that generation. That's also the most politically dominant generation. They have the highest output for voters. Like They're not going to do it. So is there something here where we have to just use it as like an example for the younger generation? Like, look, whatever reforms we do, there's somewhere you're going to have to just draw a line and say they're going to get theirs and everybody else is going to wind up another pot. I know that's politically, you know, dynamite. But isn't that the only option here is at some point you're just going to have to draw a line and go, okay, they get all theirs and everybody else. We're going to have to do something different. Yes, that's that's kind of where the piece is going is we want to show that the sooner we act, the less painful it's going to be, because what we want to avoid is just feeling the pain directly. Like that's when people will start acting. That's when Congress will start making decisions is when there's not enough money. And truly what it means is providers like doctors and and, uh, nurses and hospitals will get less money to take care of those patients. So that will have a real impact. It will mean that premiums will go up or out-of-pocket costs will go up for Medicare beneficiaries because it's not free care that they get, right? But it's heavily subsidized care. So they will feel it that way too. It's kind of, I think that, you know, the best solution will probably be a mixture of all these things. What worries me that uh, is that eventually we'll just have gimmicks. Like you said earlier, we'll just have budget gimmicks and it's going to be a short-term fix. But we really can't afford that because in the long run, the, the problem just keeps compounding. Now, we've done this before, like we talked about before. Congress loves to legislate by emergency because it puts people on the spot and they can get things done easier. Um, I'm old enough to remember it. Uh, 98 midterms on top of the impeachment stuff, which was the top item. Uh, Medicare reform was the big ticket item. That's the first election I voted on. I remember it well. There was a uh, fear of insolvency. So in 1997, 98, running up that 98 midterm, they actually did a fix on that. But as you started talking about in this piece, if they wait to the last minute because of the way this is structured and because of the severity of the problem now, this isn't something where Congress is really going to be able to last minute fix it effectively, is it? No, it's not. It's going to take time anyways. And there's going to be a bit of I I think there's going to be a bit of time during which there won't be enough money. Right. Or maybe we'll just find this gimmick. But then long term, we should really be kicking in with um, uh, real reforms. So some things could include like. There, there are things that we don't like, right? Raising taxes is probably going to happen. Raising the Medicare payroll tax just so that we can um, replenish this fund. But in the long run, it's really structurally, there's a lot of waste in Medicare. I think we all know that. Um, and so then that's like one way of thinking about, you know, maybe there are ways to cut the costs of hospitals. And then there's a lot of industry capture too, where, um, you know, we're providing services to the elderly that maybe they don't need or actually make them sicker. There too, we, we need to start actually looking under the hood and asking, what is it that Medicare beneficiaries are getting and is it really helping them? Yeah. And we've seen some supporting court uh, rulings lately about the paybacks and the, and the structure of that funding. There's a lot of moving pieces here, isn't it? Because I know we're talking legislatively here and positive, po- legislatively and policy-wise here, but there's a Supreme Court 
piece here because a lot of this stuff gets adjudicated. The healthcare industry is a massive industry. They got a lot of lobbying power. They got a lot of lawyers. What's a realistic time frame? Like if you just started today and even if everybody was on board, wouldn't it be like two, three years just getting any kind of meaningful legislation done? It seems to me like this is such a big problem. This isn't going to be like an omnibus bill or even like the ACA where they can write one bill and deal with all this, can they? Correct. And this is what prompted me and my co-author, Lisa Graber, to, to write the piece. We were really bothered by the fact that this was not underway. Like there has barely been any discussion of this issue on the Hill. And like you said, it takes a long time to build consensus around a solution on the Hill. And so now is now is just already too late. But if we're going to be addressing the issue, the conversations need to happen ASAP. Like we can't stress that enough. That, that happened much sooner. Like you said, in the 90s, the conversation had been going on for years before they actually passed a, resol- a, a solution. Right. And, you know, you do the policy stuff, but, you know, you also live here. You watch TV, you watch streaming. I'm seeing all kinds, you know, the abortion ads are all going up now because of that. I'm seeing lots of economic ads, lots of political ads about gas prices. I do politics for a living. I don't see any discussion whatsoever about this topic. And I'm looking for it. Like I have you on today. This is the second time you've been on talking about this topic with us. So we're talking about it. I don't hear anybody talking about this outside the policy realm and just kind of the the nerdy wonky folks. Do you? Uh, no, I don't. Not at all. And partly is it is because, I mean, two things. We just discussed that it was not people didn't perceive the emergency yet. So it feels like it's a non, non-issue. And whoever goes out first talking about it is going to look like a bad guy, right? Because who wants to strip people of their Medicare? No one likes that. So it's not uh, popular. It's going to be painful no matter what. So there's no incentive for anyone to do anything about it. Like there's no credit that can be taken for a verdict, a crisis that people never felt. So that's one aspect. I think that's just not uh, helping. And it's, it's bipartisan. It doesn't stir up, um, you know, the, the, the rage of either side. It will be something that people need to come together um, to fix. And so I think that's also difficult because bipartisanship is not very popular these days. Yeah, but we, we also know how that goes with when when the American public realizes what's happening here, there's going to be rage on a uh, probably unprecedented level. Uh, Lee Zomidro joining us. We're going to take a quick break. OK, that's the problem. She's got some solutions and some ideas to talk about it. We always like to have both ends here. So we're going to talk about some of the things we may be able to do about fixing this, what Congress can do and other things like that. Also, some policy stuff that's not overly complicated for this complex problem. Elise Almidro, great friend of ours on the program. More with her as her tale continues right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. We're talking a little healthcare policy, specifically the time bomb that is Medicare and Medicaid uh, looming on the horizon. Our good friend, Elise Amidro, joining us. All right. We talked about the problem. Look, and again, this is a problem. Everybody knows it's a problem. Just nobody's talking about it because it's not, you know, right in front of everybody's faces. What's some of the things we can do now? We know the congressional makeup is going to let's just project a little bit. Let's assume we have a split Congress and White House again. President Biden's got two more years. We're assuming the Republicans will probably get at least the House, maybe the Senate. We'll see. 
So let's say the next two years, we're probably not going to get any kind of big ticket legislation like that. That puts us to 2024. That's the very narrow window to try to get something done here, isn't it? It is short. Yes. And the we, we keep predicting when Medicare Part A is going to be insolvent uh, until so last year's reports from the Medicare trustees said that it was going to be 2026. They've adjusted it upwards this year to 2028. So it seems like we have a lot of time, right? Because, you know, last year that would have made it, you know, two years or three years to, to act. Now it's a little bit more uh, time, but the reality is uh, we can do it soon enough. So yeah, we, we need to really start thinking about things that we can do. And one of them would be like, as um, like I was suggesting in my piece, not something that is uh, a good solution in my view, but maybe a necessary one at, uh, at first is just to raise the Medicare tax that uh, is just going to be very painful for people, especially as we go into a potential recession, as inflation is really high. That just means less money in their pockets. Um, but that might be one painful way of addressing that, at least in the short term. While we think about longer term financing solutions, like is there a different way that we can put people, um, like, you know, help, help people access hospital services, not with Medicare Part A, but with Medicare Part C? which is Medicare Advantage. So it's the, the plan that allows um, beneficiaries to actually choose what plan they would like to have. This is a much more uh, financially sustainable plan and it gives beneficiaries much more um, ownership over their care and over the coverage that they have. So I think that's actually a nice solution is to put people in a place that's not gonna be affected by the insolvency. And in a perfect world, this would be part of a larger healthcare reform of the whole system, because part of the problem here is, and you're a policy person, so you can speak to this, kind of explain it to me like I'm five, because again, this is really complicated, but you know, the trust fund and Medicare, that works. It's not necessarily in parallel. It kind of interweaves with the private healthcare system as well. You can't really separate the two. So isn't there going to be a huge problem here where you're trying to reform one without reforming the greater overall system? So no matter what you're going to do, you're going to kind of wind up in the shell game where you're fixing one problem and causing three more. Is that, is that an accurate way to describe that? It is. So long as we rely on the government governing the way healthcare is done in the U.S., which is truly the case, uh, we'll keep, you know, it's a whack-a-mole. Game of whack-a-mole. We, we just keep pushing the problem to other parts of the system. So exactly to your point, Medicare pricing influences the rest of the system, right? So if we change something to how Medicare pays for things, we'll see it ripple into the rest of the, of the, um, the system. So if we lower reimbursement rates, like if the federal government decides we can't pay as much for healthcare services, now it needs to be you know, this lower rate because we're to, to fix the insolvency, then it might mean that private payers are going to pay more. So their prices are going to go up. Or it might mean that some hospital just won't be able to survive. So then we'll have some hospitals go down, right? So I think all those uh, cases will be made. And the, the fear is just that the, the biggest players, the ones that have really captured the market, will get to dictate those terms because they hold a lot of political sway. So I don't think we're in a really good situation. But the, the sooner we can start talking about those things, the more we have time to let the best arguments rise to the surface and at least know what we're getting into when we pass reforms. Yeah. Okay. So let's put this on a, on a personal level so folks can understand it. If you have a household budget and you're insolvent or you're running out of money or you're running into debt, most people know, well, the first thing you do is you try to cut expenses somewhere. 
is there anything in here where we can try to cut some expenses, either the executive branch or the legislative branch? I know the court system is just washed with, you know, debates over the reimbursement system. That's kind of a separate thing that's out of everybody's hands right now. Where where could they do some cuts in a practical way that might actually, because people will get on the board with that before they probably will with the tax raises. So that's probably where they're going to go first because, you know, path of least resistance. Where do you think that might take shape? Well, I don't know. I feel like there's going to be a lot of resistance because it's a smaller group of interest uh, interest groups, right? We'll have hospitals that will not want to have the cuts, but it it is that's actually a good way of doing things is to just let Medicare beneficiaries feel the cost a little more. Like I said earlier, they get a lot of benefits out of Medicare, and that's been uh, a situation that is increasingly unsustainable. So, Medicare beneficiaries should like perhaps their hand to their, you know, to their uh, wallets a little bit more often when it comes to their healthcare so that they can make, be, be more involved in their healthcare decisions, right? Like if they know that when they go and receive care, this is how much they're going to be owing, then they might just, you know, make a real trade-off kind of decision between the money that they might be sending and the care that they're going to receive. Like, is it really worth it to them? So that's one way of, of putting back price signals into the system and letting people really decide if, if care is valuable to them or is it if it's worth the amount that it's going to cost. I think that's going to be a better way of reinjecting market forces into this system. Uh, should we call it trust fund or is there a better way to discuss the trust fund than just calling it a trust fund? Because people think trust fund, they think, oh, well, there's this big pile of money just sitting there waiting. And that's not really what's happening there, is there? It, it is. I mean, there is money, but it's being depleted. What's depleting it? Is it just government incompetence? Is it just government creep? I, I, you know, here's another area of this problem where it's been going on for so long, people don't even think about it anymore. It's like, okay, well, what actually depletes it? Is it is it Congress picking the pocket? Is it just pay, not paying attention to it? What's the factors that have depleted it so badly? It's just like we're paying, we're spending so much more out of the of the trust fund that comes in through revenue. So the, that's why like they're we're running out of what's in in the fund. So the longer we go with this system, the, the less money there is in it. Yeah. Okay. I know it's hard because you said it, but give us a date. What's some of the drop dead dates here that we really need to be paying attention, especially voters, because we know we work on, we talk about 2024 is probably the next time we're going to have any kind of legislation going through. Is it 2030 like you've talked about? I've seen some people talk about 2028 and 2027. Give us some deadlines and dates for the voters to be paying attention to here. 2028 is really when the uh, insolvency hits, according to this year's Medicare report, trustees report. Now, I think they're being a bit optimistic because last year, the the year was lower. It was 2026. That's when they thought it was going to go bankrupt. And it was because of the the fact that people were going back to the hospital after not having received care um, in the during during the pandemic. But now they're looking at, you know, a more stable use of resources. And also they think that so many people um, passed away from COVID, sadly, that they won't be receiving care either. So that will lead to less um, expenses. I'm not convinced that that's entirely true, uh, but I do think that 2028 is kind of an up. I do think that's an optimistic uh, date. It might be sooner than that. So we're really looking at very, you know, a very near future kind of um, situation. Yeah, it's it's looking bleak. But uh, the good news is we have representative government. We could do something about it if we want to. Bad news is we usually get the government we deserve and we haven't paid attention to this. And here we are. Uh, 
Elise Amidro joining us as always. We really appreciate your time. You have great knowledge on this subject. Let folks know how they can follow you and what you've got going on until we see you again, hopefully with some good news about this, but I fear this will be an ongoing topic, my friend. That's right. I'm only trying to shed light on it. So hopefully more people will be picking up the, the um, this issue. So you can follow me on LinkedIn, actually. That's the only place where I write. Um, at, my name is Elise, E-L-I-S-E, last name Amedro, A-M-E-Z hyphen D-R-O-Z. We are linking to the piece uh, in the show notes. Make sure you read it in its entirety and make sure you're following her. Thank you so much for the time today. It's great to see and talk to you again. I know it uh, slid into your busy schedule. So thank you for the time and we'll talk again real soon, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's have a little fun here. Uh, Washington Post. <laughs> Remember the movie The Goonies? I love that movie so much. Uh, back in 1985, Richard Donner did it. Great movie. Um, I'm just going to read this straight up. Oregon Coast Timbers may be from the shipwreck that inspired The Goonies. Now, if you've never seen The Goonies, number one, get your life together. Go watch The Goonies. Do it with your kids. Uh, number two is it was, of course, about them trying to find a uh, phantom Spanish galleon pirate ship that was, of course, loaded with treasure. Uh, I won't ruin the movie for you. If you still have not yet seen it, go watch it. But anyway, Washington Post, when archaeologists entered caves along the Oregon coast last month, they found no evidence of a booby-trapped pirate ship, Inferno, or its captain, One-Eyed Willie. Those are, that's the character from the movie. But they did locate a dozen timbers they think came from a 17th century sunken Spanish galleon that inspired Steven Spielberg's 85 film The Goonies, which features the fictional pirate and his treasure-laden vessel. No booby traps, just timbers, said Scott Williams, president of the Maritime Archaeological Society. He and his team retrieved the timbers in mid-June in the archaeological expedition that would have been right out of place in Indiana Jones, another Spielberg creation. The caves are incredibly hard to get to. He said they are located on a beach that is only accessible at high tide, and it's a tough hike to get to it on land in the boulder fields. The discovery continues to fuel the search for the wreck of the Santo Cristo de Burgo, a Spanish galleon that disappeared in the Pacific Ocean in 1693. Now, historians say it may have sunk off the coast of what is now Oregon, where items believed to have been on the vessel have washed ashore over the centuries. The idea of a missing ship turns up in the Goonies, a cult classic starring Sean Astin, Josh Brolin. By the way, Rudy and Thanos were the brothers in Goonies. Just wrap your head around that one. Moving on, Corey Feldman and a group of ragtag kids searching for treasure after discovering a long lost map. While we're on the topic of characters and we're having a little fun in this segment, Short Round and one of the Frog Brothers was also in this crew. That's a lot of 80s movies crossing paths right there. According to the spokesperson at Spielberg's company, Amblin Productions, a movie mogul used the story of the Santa Cristo de Burgo as inspiration for the film, which is set in Astoria, Oregon, near where the timbers and other artifacts have been discovered. In the Goonies, the pirate ship Inferno breaks free from its hideaway and sails off with no crew to parts unknown. In reality, the 105-foot movie prop was destroyed after filming was completed. That's a tragedy. What exactly happened to the Santo Cristo de Burgo in 1693 is a mystery. The ship simply disappeared during a crossing from Manila 
Philippines to Acapulco, Mexico, a common trade route for Spanish merchants at the time. The vessel was known to be carrying a cargo of beeswax to make candle, rare silks, and Chinese porcelain for two centuries. People have been finding evidence of the shipwreck all along the Oregon coast, fueling a belief that the Santa Cristo de Burgo was blown off course and foundered nearby. According to National Geographic, oral histories of local indigenous tribes recall a long-ago sinking blocks of beeswax from Spanish markings and broken pieces of porcelain have washed ashore near Astoria since the early 1700s, Williams said. Both offer strong clues that this was a Spanish galleon. The Chinese porcelain is important. That was a luxury good when the designs changed every 10 or 20 years, so we can date the ship pretty close based on the porcelain between 1680 and 1700, which helps us date when the ship wrecked. For 15 years, archaeologists have been trying to find what is now known as beeswax wreck. Recently, local fishermen found some ancient-looking timbers on an Oregon beach, prompting the search of a nearby cave for more weathered wood. Immediately, people began saying the 12 timbers discovered last month, one measuring nearly 8 feet in length, were from the Santa Cristo de Burgo. But are they? We're about 90% sure they are, but nothing is definitive. That's when we say we from a ship that went missing in 1693, says Williams, who is also the cultural resource program manager for Washington State's Department of Transportation. Side note here, go look up the whale explosion. Just trust me on that one. Uh, back to the piece. It's some kind of ship built in Asia, or probably South America, which would have been the case with the Santa Cristo de Burgo which is believed to have been constructed at a Spanish port on the Pacific Ocean. William said there's a chance it's an unknown shipwreck, but the odds are small for that. The simplest explanation is that these are timbers as part of the galleon. So could the remainder of the Santa Cristo de Burgio still be off the coast of Oregon? Williams hopes so. His teams with the Maritime Archaeological Society, a volunteer organization that documents shipwrecks and studies maritime history with the Pacific Northwest, plans to do more of a search. The area offshore is part of a marine reserve, so we can't go in there and just start digging things up. We do plan to do some diving over the summer. We have an underwater remote-operated vehicle, and we'll run around offshore a little bit, see what we can find. What's left of the wreckage is most likely submerged, making it difficult we hope to find one of our divers will stumble on a cannon lying on the floor. That would be pretty exciting, Williams said. If they do find the wreck, maybe it will provide Spielberg with the inspiration to make a sequel to 85. No, please, God, no. Just leave it alone. It was perfect. The film producer and director who declined an interview request through his company has said for years he wanted to make The Goonies 2, but the timing was never right. To quote a classic line from the movies, Goonies never say die. Apparently, neither does the legend of the Santo Cristo de Burgo or the Inferno, or One-Eyed Willie. Please, Steven Spielberg, do not make Goonies 2. Just leave it alone. That was a fun segment. I always love the Mooney. Go watch it with your family. Your kids will really enjoy it. More Hotel right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. <laughs> Oh, we're about to hurt tell. Okay. 
Uh, this is a fun little way to end the program. Something on the positive note. On July 3rd, Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is from uh, 96.5 KISS FM on iHeartRadio. Uh, Marine units were patrolling the Charles River and became aware that a woman had lost her diamond ring in the river nearby. Since the woman was pretty sure she knew where the fall ring had fallen into the river, the team decided to try and help recover it. Firefighters Jeremy Marach and Eric Moore prepared to dive, and within five minutes, they found it, getting the water ring just right and returning it to the grateful couple. Now, what's the odds of that actually working out, especially in the first five minutes? But they did it. So a little bit of a uh, uplifting note. Diamond ring recovered. Happy couple. Uh, I don't know how often that'll happen. So don't be dropping your diamond rings, especially in the Charles River or any other bodies of water. But there it is for you. Um, a little bit of an uplifting note. That'll do it on her tell today. Uh, we sure appreciate you giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, and we never want to waste it. So we try really hard to stick to our core principles here, turning down the noise, not yelling, discussing the important issues that are actually going to matter. Mostly, though, is the partnership, because if you're not listening, we don't have anybody to talk to. So make sure you're reaching out to us. We'd love to hear from you at hurtellshow at gmail.com, Show on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Also, our social media Twitter handles are always on the bottom third graphics of the YouTube screen. Mine is four for the fire at Twitter. You want to interact with me directly? Love to hear from you. Comments, questions, epistles, criticisms. Uh, We talk a lot about accountability. Try to hold us accountable. We'll try to answer your questions. Love to hear from you. Uh, Don't forget, if you subscribe on any of the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, whatever you're listening to, YouTube if you're watching, Facebook if you're watching on our radio partner, BigTalker.Live, any of those things. Uh, remember, we have two products every morning, the Full Herd Tell Show every weekday morning, and then Good Talks, the interview segments. Every afternoon comes out. We also have Twice on Sunday. We've done a couple special editions lately. That's where we go back, compile everything on a specific topic. We just did one on the Elon Musk uh, Twitter thing. We've also just done one on the UK with Boris Johnson resigning in UK politics. Both of those are out now. You can find those on all the platforms. So, Until then, no matter which copy of Her Tell you're listening or watching, we hope you'll share it with a friend, and we hope that you and yours are well. Wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. We'll talk to you again real soon on Her Tell. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.